Hello everyone, welcome back to Why Did Peter Sink? This is the last episode of the series called About Uranus. Alright, abandoning the idea of one god leads to the invention of sub-gods because the invention of meaning must happen. And if you can invent gods and meaning, then you can invent anything. This slope becomes slippery fast, like a Minnesota sidewalk on the first autumn sleet when the temperature hovers right around 30 degrees. Uh, you may be falling down soon when that happens. Once you reject a singular god and make a golden statue or animal or mascot into a god, then it's no longer something to be taken seriously. Why? Because a statue or animal is ridiculous as an object of power. Yes, an eagle or cougar or a lion is cool because they are strong and wild, but that doesn't give them divine powers. It just means they are good hunters for fish and rabbits and wildebeests, and it's fascinating for us to watch them, but they cannot ponder ideas like justice or mercy or the best way to organize an economy. The idea of God as something contained in this world is too small and not worthy of worship. It's a completely different concept of God from the idea of being itself. That's being itself, or what we, can, what we mean by the creator of the universe. This is why when Moses asks, what is God's name, he gets the answer back, I am who I am. God is. He is existence itself. I guess the Bible translators like to put that in all capital letters, I am who I am, because without God, nothing else exists. There is nothing before God. We are only because he said so. And he can unsay so whenever he wants to, so that we aren't. Uh, we don't believe that Zeus really exists. We just wink and repeat the tale because it's a fun story. But Zeus is more like a mascot because he doesn't demand anything from his, quote, followers. In fact, Artemis in Ephesus, um, where today is in Turkey, is basically like the modern-day worship of the bulls in Chicago or the giants in New York. It's funny that uh, many of the modern team mascots we have can be mapped to old world idols or myths. And um, these small gods are much like the sports teams of the ancient world. Or you could say our sports teams today are much like the idolatry of the ancient world. Sports fans today give as much time and energy to their animals and icons as the old world did to those lowercase gods. I'll probably, I may have to do a future episode on this because sports teams and mascots match up a little too well to old city-state idolatry. Uh, we even have statues and clothing and ritual for our worship of these sports franchises and these teams that represents our, our cities and our schools. So the problem with these small gods is this. If you can make a statue into a god, then a trophy or a diploma or a team or a house or a woman or a drug can just as easily become the object of worship, the giver of meaning to you. Um, if you listen to love songs, it's often a woman. The, the, the love song is often a, a total buy-in that they cannot be happy without this person. Um, I was just listening to the radio today and how my songs were give me a second chance, uh, something like this. And it's like a pleading, a supplication for forgiveness from another human being who they've made into a kind of God. 
and that's what love does to people, obviously. Um, many, you know, as far as these uh, icons or statues or uh, many people will say that Catholics worship statues. So um, I should point to uh, an article here. We don't worship statues. We have sacred art and pray for intercession. But rather than get derailed on that, um, yeah, there's a good article about statues in Catholic churches on Catholic.com. But the point of all sacred art is to elevate the one true God, the Trinity. Um, the object itself has no power or force or spirit, but it aids in worship. And if that helps us do God's works in the world, that is the manifestation of God so that we do good things. So, um, yeah, whenever anyone says uh, Catholics worship statues, they are uh, taking something very out of context and they don't really understand it. But anyway, moving on. What about spirits? You know, what about the attacks and spiritual combat and all that jazz? Um, and, you know, haven't, I've, haven't I just been talking about monotheism versus polytheism? You know, if there's only one God, then what's with the spirits and the demons and the angels? And it's, it's not just a word game if the one true God is real. So both the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed begin with words about believing in God. That's like the, the first line for obvious reasons because it's extremely important. In fact, you can't get to anything beyond that. Like, you cannot get to the resurrection question unless you believe in God first. And that's where I think a lot of people, um, they, if, they're, if they're ever even considering returning to faith, they have to start with God, that concept alone, and you have to surrender to God first because you're not even close to getting to um, understanding how Christianity or what it's about because the key doesn't fit the door at all yet until you have at least belief in God. Um, so... But once you put the key in with that, that'll at least get the key in your hand. And then the key begins to start sliding and slipping and fitting. And it surprises you every time the key goes a little bit further. And then someday you open the door and you're just changed. Um, so the reason those creeds start with believing in God is because it's the most important statement of faith as it leads to the, it leads the charge for the remainder of the, of the creeds. Um, the culture surrounding Israel tell the tales of other gods. It's like they are, there's like two sets of uh, warring propaganda campaigns happening at the same time. So just as the Bible argues for the one God, the Egyptians and the Greeks and others argue for the many. And it's critical for the Israelites to protect the worship of the correct God. Otherwise, they will fall into the trap of those cultures around them. And that's exactly what happens whenever they fall for idols. Once in the trap, they tumble into disorder again. So they're, they're constantly coming back out of the disorder. They're, there's um, order, then disorder, then they reorder again. The story of Noah, of course, this is before we even get to the Israelites, is about falling into mayhem, sin, and disorder. Um, the golden calf incident happens when the people abandon the one God, um, or they actually build a statue, and they say, no, this is your God. And, and of course, Moses comes down and is like, what are you talking about? That's not, um, <laughs> that's not the representation. Um, the book of Judges is full of these cycles of order and disorder and reordering as the people believe, then they rebel, then they return to the one God. Um, and many of the examples are stories that doesn't mean they're being praised. It's just telling the story of the nation. Um, what you see happening in these stories repeatedly is the story of the prodigal son, like on repeat. 
but instead of one man, it's a whole nation where it's happening too. So like the prodigal son, you know, takes his money from his father and goes off with the prostitutes and, and boozes it all, drinks it all away. And eventually he's returns completely uh, penitent and regret, full of regret. And the, of course, his father runs out to him and still loves him. And but that's what you see happening with the nation um, in the Old Testament. You know, the whole story of the Bible is this reassertion of the proper order where the Most High God, the one God, rules over the people in all creation, which is what fell away uh, through Adam, Cain, and Abel in the, the Tower of Babel story. Um, even after Noah was, uh, everybody's wiped out and reset, um, it still uh, it goes bad, you know, again. So the story of Jesus is the story of the one true God, the one power of the universe, coming back to reclaim his creation from the lesser gods and to steer the whole thing back to the start, to the simple and pure and true and beautiful beginning. The turning away, this turning away from God reached all nations. The city-states and tribes believed that this was the proper state of affairs. And so, for example, the Greeks had Athena in Athens. She was the patron goddess of the city. And that should come as no surprise uh, because Athens saw itself as wise and strong, like Athena. She's the warrior princess. She's super smart. She can, uh, you know, kick ass. That's, that's her. So the city modeled itself after its selected god or goddesses. So Athens and Athena do like a spiritual mirroring, um, just as the 115th Psalm actually explains to us how idols work. And this is worth reading. Um, the 115th Psalm says, the creator of the idol becomes like the idol. And the quote is this, um, the makers will be like them and anyone who trusts in them. So what you make is what you become. That's like what you do is what you become as well. How, you know, your actions um guide you to do more of the same actions. Um, it's the same thing with, that's like we were saying, like habitual sin. You know, if your habit is to go to church, you're probably going to pray more. If your habit is to go to the bar, you're going to drink more and they're going to probably do other things too, because you're, um, you're uh, escaping and, and <laughs> turning away. So again, Corinth, I was talking about this earlier, a seaport, they, uh, their god was Poseidon, of the god of the sea, of course. Not exactly a shock, because a port city is on the sea. And Poseidon's often the angry god. Uh, another city of Rhodes, the city of Rhodes, had its famous giant named um, Colossus. And that city worshipped Helios, the sun god. Uh, a more interesting story around the old world of patron gods is Ephesus, the city that is in modern-day Turkey. And the reason I bring that one up is because it's in the Acts of Apostles when the, when St. Paul and some of the other early Christians went there uh, to tell people the good news. <laughs> so Ephesus held Artemis as the goddess of the city. Artemis is um, one of the famous gods of the Greek-Roman world. And St. Paul shows up and he causes a riot when he starts converting people to Christ away from Ar Artemis. Interestingly, the, the local silversmith like there's a silversmith guild or something that's upset because the silversmith will no longer be able to sell trinkets and worship material, uh, basically souvenirs. And um, yeah, if, if everyone becomes a Christian, he's worried that they're all going to become Christians and they don't have any trinkets to sell them. So the riot is more about money than really devotion to Artemis. 
um, the silversmiths um, probably didn't realize that they could start selling all kinds of new souvenirs as people today like to buy and sell Christian souvenirs. And I'm not going to dive into that question right now, but I will say I am all in on the idea of sacred art. And um, but I'm not in on like uh, charlatans selling like fake relics and all those kind of things, which happens if you read um, the Canterbury Tales and things. There's things about that uh, basically like straight up fraud around things that are supposed to be sacred. So um, the riot in, in uh, Ephesus upsets the balance of the city as there is a perceived order around the goddess Artemis. And introducing a new centerpiece of faith and culture scares the people because they are already settled into their existing structure. And where there is order, um, any hint of disorder will cause worry. And when the riots begin, disorder has arrived. It's out of the box. Like, um, you can't put it back in easily until everything settles down and you get this equal and opposite reaction. You know, riots um, escalate extremely quickly. We saw that in the United States in 2020 when um, the cities were on fire. And then of course, uh, there was people were even knocking down the white, uh, the Capitol building. So we had uh, riots of both sides of the political spectrum happen. Um, you see these equal opposite reaction type of things happening. Um, but when the anchors for our life are in place, and the wind is calm, we don't want to pull up anchor and move. So in the case of Ephesus, the city is comfortable, in this undemanding idolatry like there's you know artemis she's just there and she doesn't really demand anything everybody's happy like economy is just moving along and here comes saint paul uh coming in to tell them about jesus and the resurrection um so you can see this happening in our world today like there's the power struggles are going on they it goes on between those who believe in one god and those who don't um it's still happening it's still happening uh, we've lived since the death of Jesus, which is why they say A.D. Anno Domini in the year of our Lord. Um, we are living in this age where the one God has been ascendant. Um, it's been dominant, really. Um, you know, and before that, it wasn't. So, um, but you know, in 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 uh, Ephesus, there's a third column in the battle of those, or I should say, I'm sorry, today. Um, there's like a third uh, element going on of, of no God at all. So uh, you, I guess there's like still the argument of is there a God or not, of course. And of course, these, the, which is atheism, which is on the rise. And you get more of this chaos kind of happening. You can, everyone can feel it and they're talking about it. And some people think it's good and others think it's bad. Um, of course, God's will will be done in the end. So these elements were there in the past as well. Like just when, when Paul went to Ephesus, um, people were very much the same as they are now. It's just not popular or common for people to think that they were the same uh, as those people back then. But we are. We are exactly the same. The difference, though, today is that the gods of modernity are not as obvious to us, but they are there. They're present. Um, and this is the story of history. You can read about it in the mythology of the peoples, um, just like you can read the allegorical unfolding of it in the novel Lord of the Flies. So these first, the first humans, whenever that was, when we first stood up in the African savanna, or when God formed us out of dust, um, or both of those things happened at the same time, um, in that first garden, we became aware of our difference from the other animals. We had to discover how to live, 
how to act and how to rule. And eventually we had to figure out what to worship, what to give meaning to our lives. We had to spend a lot of time mulling over the idea of origins. And most importantly, we had to decide if there were no gods, many gods or one God, uh, because only one of those things could be true. And we've tried all three options. And in the 30,000 years of human drama, the experiments surely happened more than once and maybe several hundred times. And the story of the Bible is the story of a nation that has cast their vote for the one God, um, while the story of the Greeks, Romans, Babylonians is the story of nations that followed many gods. And surely the claim sounds dramatic. So to say that every nation um, at the time of Israel, when, when Abraham began, to say that every nation but one has fallen prey to like the devil or spirits, it makes it sound really extreme. But that is the claim. Uh, that is what the story of the Tower of Babel describes as the scattering of the peoples of the world led to the invention of strange gods. Um, the reason the Tower of Babel is the last story before Abraham's entrance into the next scene in Genesis 12 is because the scattering explains the world that Abraham is born into is the world of the pagan world of many gods. So in the Tower of Babel story, God withdrew from people when they attempted to pull God down to earth, um, which is just a way of saying that they tried to become God. They wanted to become God or make a deal with God. They wanted a, a God that was, uh, it was like, let's make a deal. They wanted technology to bring him down um, and lift them up. So when neither of those plans worked, they turned from God and the nations were born. Um, it also kind of seems like God retreated from them and let this happen um, in order to, to work out this bigger salvation plan. So with the nations came these lesser gods. And that is how the first half of Genesis concludes, or the first third, I don't know, um, which is right before Abraham. So this is where things start to get interesting. Um, and if the ancient language and the lists of names don't make your eyes glaze over, it's very interesting. And you need a, you need a good study Bible. Like uh, I think the Navarre study Bible is a great one. I know there's other ones that other people like, but... Um, you can quickly lose focus when you start to dive into those um, begat, begat, begat paragraphs and you miss uh, the gold that's uh, hidden in between them begats of like who begat who this this guy begat that guy. And this, you know, and that's why I say begat, begat, begat. There's these stories, um, sections of whole paragraphs where it's just giving you a genealogy. Um, so let me do a brief and possibly bad retelling of Abraham's life, hitting only the important points that may help me tie this together with Uranus. Um, sorry, I had to say it one more time. Uh, Abraham lived in a place called Haran or Haran, uh, named after one of his own relatives. Uh, Haran is believed to have been a place of a moon cult, meaning Abraham's family likely worshipped a god of the Mesopotamian or Sumerian pantheon, and I think the name was Nana. And so, in other words, Abraham is born into the world that is fully pagan and worships many gods. His people are not believers in the one true God. No, his people are like everyone else around him. That's what the Tower of Babel, the preceding story said. Everybody's gone. Everybody's gone uh, to the many gods. Um, they have. They've all rejected the one God. And that's why Abraham's story is so important. Uh, when Abraham is born, um, 
Uranus and Osiris and all the other primary pantheon gods have already been overthrown by the child gods. So there are gods and goddesses and idols all over the place. And the rebellion has already occurred. And the one true God is not in the ball game. Abraham is living in the age of uh, when an age of mythology is everywhere. And again, this is around 1800 or 1600 BC. So before Christ was born. The story of Abraham begins when he is called by God to venture out from his home, leaving his relatives, his country, and his father's house. That's what it says, those three things. He leaves his, his relatives, his country, and his father's house. So um, it's like a city uh, where he's very comfortable, you would assume. And what this also means is leaving the old moon god behind, and he's, he's going to abandon that. Um, and when called, he goes without questioning the call in a kind of, um, quote, drop the nets move like that of Peter and Andrew when the call from Jesus happens or like Mary's fiat uh, when the angel Gabriel visits her and she says, let your will be done, um, not mine. Abraham just carries out that kind of um, action. He just does it. So this break from Abraham's family starts a new life for him, one of total trust in the one God that he hears speaking to him. This is a radical change from the human pride that happened just one chapter earlier in the Tower of Babel story. And without a doubt, this marks the turning point of like Act 1 of the Bible, um, or maybe it's Act 2, I guess, because Act 1 is all the way up to Babel, then there's uh, Act 2 is like Abraham to Jesus, and Act 3 is this messianic age that we're living in today. So since the word repent uh, means to turn, to turn back, you might say that this is the point of repentance for Abraham, the return to the one God. And there's, there's much to go into about that, but I only want to go into one more thing about Abraham. Okay, maybe, maybe a couple. But the reason why Abraham is the patriarch, the big P, um, patriarch's a dirty word today, but that's, he is the patriarch. Um, and it's, it's kind of strange that it's, it's such a bad word now, but um, is because he represents the return of the worship to the one true God. So no one else is doing this. It's not cool or trendy at all. Um, no one's talking about it except for like him and uh, one other guy that we'll talk about in a little bit. But um, So God promises Abraham land, descendants, and fame. And he's also going to make uh, his seed this uh, someone be like the savior it's implied in in this covenant uh, and that's where we get the idea that someone is coming to rescue us uh, abraham in his journeys then he sojourns in canaan he goes he walks to egypt and he has in bethel he has a couple interesting situations where his wife uh, in egypt there's some some stories in there i'm not going to go into but you could spend a lot of time talking about all of this um, but after various adventures, he has this material excess. He's wealthy um, and you know, he's a nomad. So it's not just him walking around. There's obviously other peoples with him. He's like a leader. Um, and then he gets caught up in this local war. And that's where I wanted to spend a little bit of time. Um, we learn that, you know, he has some money and a small army even by now. As, and he takes his soldiers into battle to save his nephew, Lot. Um, Lot is an interesting character. Um, he's always getting into trouble, and there's a lot of uh, <laughs> speculation about him. But uh, So Abraham, with only 318 men, he defeats four other local kings of tribes or, or mini-nations or whatever they are. 
So, and they have uh, some names that are difficult to say. So victorious, Abraham returns from this war. It's like a, it is a rescue mission and he's got all kinds of loot and um, not to mention like glory. I mean, he just won this war. He retrieved his nephew and local kings come to meet him. And so a mysterious king arrives, the king of Salem, the king of Salem arrives. Um, there's also the king of Sodom that shows up and lot, uh, Abraham seems to want very little to do with the king of Sodom. And, you know, as, as Abraham has already left his home because of like pagan, uh, uh, the moon God is there and he's like, no, I can't, I'm moving about in the world uh, separate from that. Um, when he, when he meets this victory, like, uh, meeting happens, uh, he has no interest really in, in the king of Sodom. And, but there's another king of Salem and, you know, you think, wait a minute, I've heard of Salem before. Where have I heard this? Um, there's Salem, the setting for the soap opera Day, days of our lives where Bo and Hope Brady live. That's not the Salem I'm thinking of. Then there's Salem, Massachusetts, where the famous witch trials happened and it's the setting of Henry Miller's play, The Crucible. But wait, uh, no, there's another, I've heard Salem in another place before, uh, but it's part of another word. That's Jerusalem, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Um, so not only in this meeting do we have, um, through Abraham, the one God coming back into the game of human life, like he's re-entering the scene through Abraham, but we have the city of Jerusalem being introduced as well. And, um, oh, this person who showed up, uh, what's this? So the king of Salem, Melchizedek, um, he's brought some food and something to drink. That was nice. That was nice of him. But he hasn't brought the usual barbecue, potluck, goat, or bull. He's brought something different to the celebration. He's brought bread and wine. He's brought bread and wine. Yes, bread and wine. So now we have Abraham in Jerusalem with a king that brought bread and wine. And it's starting to feel eerie and weird because we know all of these elements from the life of Christ. But that happens nearly 2,000 years after this event. Um, it gets weirder and more eerie the more you read um, the Bible and the more you read the life of Jesus. And these things, uh, there are various things that are uh, difficult. You could, uh, it's popular to present, pretend that um, the gospel writers added, they looked in the Old Testament and added all these things um, or that Jesus acted them out. But there's many, many things that... Um, connect in strange ways that wouldn't have that same explanation. So, like I said, um, the eerie weirdness is like this connectivity uh, between all of the salvation history of the Bible. It's, it's very amazing the more you read it. So, um, so this, this king, uh, who he lived in the time when a king was also a priest. So those job titles were like one and the same. And even more interesting, this uh, King Mel Melchizedek comes to meet with Abraham and offer this bread and wine as a sacrifice uh, for winning this battle. And this, to me, this, this began to raise hairs on my neck uh, because if you haven't heard this before, it's so interesting. And this little section is just inserted into this chapter um, of Genesis. It's like five lines but uh, it's very interesting that it's put in there. It's like either they were just like literary geniuses or this is put in there for a very 
uh, strange and meaningful reason that connects to things much later in the Bible. But um, so that's not all that's interesting about this dude with the long name of Melchizedek. He's not just a priestly king. Um, he is a priestly king of the quote, God most high. So the, the term God most high is really important. Um, he's not a priest of a moon god. No, he is said to be the priest of the one God, the true God, the only God, which is referred to in this passage as the most high God or God most high. And if that were not enough, there is a little more to this verse, something that my, my blind eyes passed right over every time I saw this passage, is that this God most high is directly referred to then as the creator of heaven and earth. So in other words, this ain't, he ain't talking about Uranus. And this isn't Osiris, and this isn't Odin, or the moon cult god, or the Hawaiian Pele, or the spirit horse, or the great pumpkin. This isn't any of the primary gods of any pantheon. This is clearly a reference to the god of Genesis, chapter 1, verse 1. And this guy came, uh, you know, this king of Salem came with bread and wine, and he wants to praise uh, the one god. So this priest king of Salem just shows up out of the blue, and he is either one of the last people on planet Earth, along with Abraham, that speaks of the Most High God, or perhaps he is God himself uh, visiting Abraham. I don't know what to make of it, but that is one option for interpretation. And some people believe this is what is called a theophany, where God uh, reveals himself, like in the burning bush or in the transfiguration. And uh, so... I'm not sure about that, so I'll leave it to the experts and many centuries of more well-versed thinkers. And in either way, whether Melchizedek is an ordinary man or a manifestation of the God Most High, either way, he's talking about the God Most High as the creator of heaven and earth. And this is the moment where Abraham is blessed and where Jerusalem becomes the sacred site of the chosen people. So note, um, Abraham is still called Abram at this point. He's not yet Abraham. Um, of course, his name changes when the covenant is uh, made. But so Mel here's the passages from Genesis 14, verse 18. Uh, Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of God Most High. He blessed Abram with these words. Blessed be Abram by God Most High, the creator of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who delivered your foes into your hand. And this is huge. I, I know it probably doesn't seem like it, but this is huge because this is the moment where Jerusalem becomes tied into everything to follow, where bread and wine become important for future references regarding sacrifice, and where we hear this interesting term, God Most High. And there's more here too. There's always more. Believe me, you can always find more. Uh, briefly, I need to point out that this last line where Mel Melchizedek blesses Abraham and praises God, saying he delivered your foes into your hand. Um, this battle that took place is the compelling event that brings Melchizedek to make this blessing. And interestingly, the battle was a rescue mission. So um, Jesus coming was also a rescue mission, but so is this one. So um, Abraham's nephew is Lot. And Lot lives near the infamous cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, which have not yet been destroyed. So that's later on. But earlier on in chapter 13, Lot and Abraham, they had been traveling together. So uh, Lot, um, you know, went with Abraham 
uh, and after they have enough wealth and sheep and and you know they're grazing and need water rights and all this they decide to go separate ways so before the scene uh, the buddy movie comes to an end lots kind of a very minor character um, you know Abraham is is the the chosen one obviously but lot moves to the fertile Jordan Valley which is the best land and Abraham takes Canaan so uh, but later um, you know, the choice of Lot to take the fertile Jordan Valley is an important uh, character or attribute of the story. Uh, because later, the local tribes come and invade Lot's land, and he's captured. And this is the first of several times that Lot finds himself in deep water. He's in trouble repeatedly. Um, so what happens then is Abraham's entry into this, this war is for the purpose of saving Lot and his people, which he does. So he takes his 318 men, and um, after saving the people and the goods um, of, of Lot and Sodom, um, Abraham refuses to receive a, re a reward. Um, the king of Sodom's like, um, you can keep the stuff, can I just have the people? Um, and Abraham says, no, I don't want the stuff. Uh, here's the people and your stuff. And my soldiers ate some food on the way. That was your stuff, but that's because they were hungry. So that's that's all the payment we want. We don't want any association whatsoever with you, King of Sodom. Thanks. Um, basically, he was going to save his nephew, and that's about all we know. But um, so after he refuses to, he he refuses to receive the reward because he's sworn to the Lord God Most High, Maker of heaven and earth, that he will not profit from this war, um, and instead. What does Abraham do? He actually gives 10% of his property to God. You know, he gives 10%, I guess, to Melchizedek, or he does something, he's giving it. So this means that, what, what did Abraham do? He went to war, he won the war, he really received nothing for it, and he ended up giving away 10% of his own property. So you, of course, have the institution or idea of tithing beginning here as well. But um, So what's interesting is that immediately after Melchizedek has brought out the bread and wine and makes the blessing, um, Abraham becomes generous and magnanimous. So uh, when Melchizedek states that it was God that delivered the foes, Abraham seems to be changed and generosity just flows out from him. There's something about this meeting with Melchizedek um, because in the old world, if you went and won a war, you take the stuff, you take the people, uh, that's not a normal reaction to what he's doing. Um, in fact, you would go to war to get power, uh, wealth, honor, um, all of those things. And Abraham kind of does the opposite here. So, um, so I'm just going to leave this episode with this thought. Um, Lot, his nephew Lot, chooses the easier path and he ends up suffering for it. And that's really the, the lesson. Um, the land he chose was fertile and lush in this, in this valley. But it leads him to this hard life and eventually his own kidnapping. So all that, you know, the Shakespeare line, all that glistens is not gold or glisters in, in the way Shakespeare writes it. But all that glistens is not gold. And of course, we, we know that's true. Lot learns it the hard way. Abraham must save him, but only wins the battle with God's help. The cities that Lot occupies, um, Sodom, returns to corruption and lawlessness, um, as does Lot. So Lot... Um, is kind of living this life of habitual sin, 
you know, even if he's rescued, he falls right back into it. And everyone knows what that's like, either for themselves or someone that they love, where they, um, they see this pattern, this bad pattern happening. Um, once Lot is back into this life of, of sin and um, making bad choices, Abraham pleads with God for another rescue, for mercy. But this time, um, everyone knows the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. God obliterates the people and the cities in this fiery blast from the heavens. Um, this is the angry God, the hellfire God. So the rescue mission for the sinners of Lot's world happens only once. And um, as much as he pleads for mercy, uh, God's not bringing mercy this time. Uh, mercy has already been shown with the rescue mission. And in the second coming, the second round comes judgment. And that is food for thought because there's a rescue and then there's not a rescue on the second one. The second time there's justice. So you have mercy and justice and you can take what they want, what you want from that. I just find that to be a very interesting sequence of events with Lot and Abraham. Um, the hard thing uh, for me about reading the Bible is that you can so easily pass over something like a phrase, God most high. So this Melchizedek uh, character just pops in and he drops this, these one-liners um, blessing. He says, God most high creator of heaven and earth. And we just kind of pass over it. Like, oh, isn't that nice? He brought some bread and wine and um, they had a, like a picnic. It's not that. It's, <laughs> there's a lot more going on there because we're thinking in 21st century brains instead of 1600 BC uh, sacred writer brain mode. Um, the little phrase of God most high refers to the God that was first and foremost and came before anything that existed, including the idea of mythology like Uranus or whatever. Um, this is about the one God. Melchizedek is talking about the one God before Uranus or anyone or anything else. Nothing exists without this God speaking up and saying so. Literally, God spoke and made all things. That's how he does it um, with his voice. So um, there's, that's another thing you can talk about for weeks at a time. But um, reading mythology can get confusing really fast, really fast, even more so than the Bible, because each ancient storyteller has a slightly different take on the tale, along with different motives for why he's telling it. Like when I was saying I read Hesiod, has the Greek ones, um, there's other ones that the stories are slightly different, and you can have the same with Sumerian or Egyptian myths or Norse or anything else. Um, the mythologies of the ancient past can lead into these endless caves of exploration because it becomes complicated as the family trees and interactions cross into one another. Then there is, this, there is war and culture clash, which leads to the myths being rewritten and repurposed. Uh, the conquered gods are brought in. Um, the, the neighbor's heroes are, are washed in with the dominant myth. Uh, so they, of course, the dominant myths of the ancient world were Greek and Roman and Egyptian. Um, and even before that, there's like Sumerian or Mesopotamian gods. And all of these mythologies uh, become pretty complicated. So there's an overarching theme to all of them, though, that might makes right. Um, it's of the powerless overthrowing the powerful, uh, like a food chain or pecking order that keeps changing and squirming around. Um, it's like the golden bow myth where um, the slayer has slain the slayer kind of thing. You, the one, the one who takes over kills the one before it and someone else is going to come and kill that one. So that's the story of mythology. Um, and of course, the 
the one God does not have that, any of that. It just doesn't happen. No, no one takes down the one God. And this leads me to a point that I've taken far too long to arrive at, but it's a quote by a famous physicist named Richard Feynman, which goes like this. You can recognize truth by its beauty and simplicity. When you get it right, it is obvious that it is right, at least if you have any experience, because usually what happens is that more comes out than goes in. The inexperienced, the crackpots and people like that, make guesses that are simple, but you can immediately see that they are wrong, so that does not count. Others, the inexperienced students, make guesses that are very complicated, and it sort of looks as if it's all right, but I know it's not true because the truth always turns out to be simpler than you thought. So this physicist saying you can recognize truth by its beauty and simplicity um, is a very powerful quote. And um, he's not the only scientist who has that uh, idea. Um, this is exactly how it feels to discover or rediscover the one God theory, if you want to call it that. Uh, the one God makes sense. While the mess and the tangle and the overcomplicated tales of mythological systems lead to confusion and endless searching and this growing back into each other of these family trees, um, there's also this restlessness like that of Odysseus, this constant searching and changing and shape-shifting. And that is what life feels like when you don't have this anchor of the one God because you are trying to define your own meaning. So if you go down the rabbit hole of mythology, you can spend a lifetime digging for the truth and be as confused in the end as when you started. I'm not saying myths are bad because they exist as stories because we like stories. We are all people defined by stories. Um, there's a story and a myth for everyone. We each have one that fits us. Um, however, the myth that suits us will change over this five-act play that makes up our life. Um, we have different stages of life. You can think of them like acts in a play. You know, there's childhood, there's um, your 20s, your parenthood, um, your career age, you're, you're an empty nester, your grandparent, you're in a nursing home. Um, the myth that describes you in your childhood will not be the same myth that describes your teens. And the myth that fits, well, fits will shift again in your 20s. Uh, this happens with every decade of life as the view changes when you change roles. But these stories we use to explain ourselves are still only stories. Uh, They're explanations, but they are not the truth. The truth is always simple and pure and beautiful. So to quote Feynman, you can recognize truth by its beauty and its simplicity. And that is what the one God provides. The creator of heaven and earth is simple and beautiful and gives you a place to rest so you can stop searching and stop trying to save yourself. Why? Why is this simple and beautiful? Well, because the one God is the only explanation that can cut through all the decades of your life and give focus. What we lack is focus, which is a central point, a point of concentration where all rays of light meet. And we need something simple and beautiful to look through something clear of cobwebs and dust and grime, and the myths are confusing and changing. The one God cleans up and gives meaning to all of creation and all of time 
because only the one God is the God that can make sense no matter what part of the five-act play you are in. A child, a teenager, a 20-something, a worker, a father or mother, a grandparent, a retiree, and especially someone on their deathbed, all of these stages of life can understand what the idea of one God means. And you cannot do that with Uranus. Simplicity and beauty. So Einstein and Feynman knew that the truth had those qualities of simplicity and beauty. And these were scientists. They're some of the finest ever to have walked with us in this world. Um, the Big Bang Theory is oddly simple. And it's more odd still. What's more odd still is that the Big Bang Theory was discovered by an astronomer who was also a priest of all people. Um, and what's also interesting is that the Big Bang Theory was an insult of the, what the theory is because it was brought up by this uh, man of God and they thought it was just him trying to do like an end around to bring back a kind of creation story. <laughs> um, it's, the only problem is it, it checks out and it keeps checking out. So oddest of all, what really takes the cake here is that this same theory supports the universe being created. And by that, I mean it points to the universe having a beginning which fits with the cosmology of Genesis. Now, obviously, their understanding of waters under the earth and waters over the firmament were wrong, but it made sense to them at the time because water seemed to come from the sky and from underneath. Um, so when you consider the Big Bang Theory versus the complicated instructions that come along with string theory or the multiverse, um, it's clear that the Big Bang is far more simple and beautiful. And after a while, those other explanations, these wild ones, begin to look like Uranus's family tree. It's, uh, they're too complicated. Um, so yes, we are small and finite, and we cannot know the mind of God, nor fully understand. I get that. I, I absolutely get that. But we can recognize beauty and truth and goodness. Uh, we can see those things in a baby, in a tree, in a bird nest, uh, in Einstein's equations, in Shakespeare's sonnets, or in the simple and humble carpenter who showed up 2,000 years ago and offered us, uh, offered Abraham some bread and wine. Um, actually, Melchizedek offered the bread and wine to Abraham. Jesus offered the bread of life to us. So there's this uh, thread there, but I won't go into that. Um, you know, the argument from beauty, they say, is not the proof of God, but it certainly is one of them, along with like Thomas Aquinas's other five proofs. And um, I don't see anything that uh, is better than that, especially in the mythology or in our um, modern versions of, of those mythologies. So the thing about our minds is that we fall. We fall. Our reason doesn't um, always lead us to the right place. Um, we hide. You know, we lie. We cheat. We do all the things that go against what is simple and true and beautiful when we serve ourselves. Our default setting is toward sin. And that's, that's the reality. Um, to turn away from the one God and the truth. That's what we've, we are tempted to do. So what the simple stories of the Garden of Eden and the Tower of Babel are trying to convey is how we find ourselves always returning to the state of sin. That's it. Um, what the rest of the Bible is attempting to tell us is how to get out of the mud. Um, the good news is that the devil always overplays his hand because he has to bluff. He has no real power over God. 
So the spirits try to destroy God's creation, which means us. That means we're in the middle of this thing. So that's why when you talk about like spiritual combat, which a lot of modern people would think is completely nuts, uh, you if you uh, if you pray, um, you you may start to find that you understand what that means when you're trying to resist temptations. Um, the humbling reality is that we are like children taken hostage in a larger battle. We're like pawns in this bigger game of chess. So we are attacked by temptations and we face this spiritual combat all the time. Uh, sp there's, there's things that seek our attention in many ways with strategies and tactics. Um, they can steer us at any time toward the wrong choice as free will gives us ample opportunity to stray. And the minute you think you have it solved, watch out. Watch out because that's when it's going to get you. In fact, Will Smith just recently uh, mentioned that about when he slapped Chris Rock on the stage of the Oscars, which was this huge, famous, uh, infamous moment for him. Um, and Denzel Washington had told him, he said, that when he was at the top of his career, at the height of his power or fame, that's when the devil would get him. Uh, I think that's the perfect, uh, it's the perfect example and it's the perfect answer. And uh, I don't know, I, I have a feeling like uh, Will Smith is woken up by this to see, um, you know, that this is real. So anyway, you can see this happen in the Bible, in the chosen people where the nation declares its position of fidelity to God, but then individuals stray and often the whole nation wanders. Um, even leaders cannot uphold the belief when tested, such as Solomon, who builds temples for his pagan wives. This is Solomon. The wisest king, um, he even makes the most classic blunder. He's at the height of his power and he's lured in. Um, his wives have come from other countries and they probably say, wouldn't it be nice if I had a little temple over here? And he says, sure. But then by doing that, he's, he's, uh, he's abandoned the one true God. Um, it's just the classic, classic mistake. And was the, Solomon is so wise, we just assume, we put those words together. Solomon, wisdom. Um, but... Amid this, the chosen people, there's always this remnant who remains, who believe, and who follow the commandments. They're always there. They're with us today. Um, I know people who are very good at that, and nothing can shake them. Their faith is unshakable. You can see their love for other people in everything they do. The goodness pours out of them, and it's, it's an amazing thing. You see them as like instruments of God doing good things in this world, so for anyone who thinks, well, I could never do that, you can because you can find these people all over the city, wherever you live, small town, large uh, city, country, wherever. Like there are people uh, who wholeheartedly believe this and they put their, their entire effort into it and they are these instruments. They carry out the works um, and that's, that's not just, um, it's not even just, Catholics or Lutherans or whatever. I mean, th there are these people doing this all over the world. You can be one of these instruments. You just have to ask for faith, hope, and charity every day. And honestly, you have to recognize that you're a sinner. That'll get you a long ways. Um, it'll help you. Uh, it'll help you get to humility. So to declare belief in one true God is easy to do, but to live out that statement of faith is difficult. This is exactly why the why people leave the one God. Because sticking with the demands of God is difficult. Um, it's difficult un unless un until it turns into like an act of love where you want to obey the rules because of what God's given to you through Christ. That's the funny thing is once it 
once it's turned, once the uh, spark or the light switch is on, the rules don't even matter because you just want to give glory to God. Um, why did Adam and Eve turn away? Because the fun things drew them away. They tempted them. They wanted to be like God's, and that's what the, uh, the shiny one advertised to them. He said, God's lying to you. You can be like him. Well, you can't be, you can't be like the one God. You're not like, that's, that's the, the, the big mistake is thinking you can be. So most of the fun, I'll say, quote, fun things are not allowed. But the problem is not the rules, but it's what you consider to be fun. The problem is in the heart. Um, Jesus could not be more clear about this, but everyone skips over these parts where he forbids something to get to the fun part of judge not. Um, and judge not is the most cherry-picked thing out of the Bible. But And obviously, yes, we are not to judge others. We have to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. Um, but and we think Jesus appears to affirm the sins um, that are we're not supposed to do. Um, we really want this hippie version of Jesus because that version is more like um, is more like a pagan god like Zeus or Dionysus or Eros. Um, obviously, Jesus teaches forgiveness and mercy, but he most certainly does not say uh, boys will be boys or well here's some money for beer go have fun. Um, he doesn't say, ah, a little pornography never hurt anyone. Or he doesn't say, ah, ignore those Purit Puritans. Sex is no big deal. I mean, to me, um, in our age, everybody pretends they say sex is no big deal. And yet they're obsessed with, <laughs> with sex more than the Victorian England people were. That's all is talked about. Um, so you can see that what your idea of fun is, um, is what you're focused on. It's what you're kind of worshiping. So uh, what we want today is this undemanding version of Christianity. We don't want the actual Christianity that has like difficult requirements. So the reality is we all turn from God because we have favorite sins. Um, it's going to happen. It will happen. And anyone who pretends it hasn't happened or that they, were, they have risen above it, um, they are spewing pride like the Bellagio dancing fountains in Vegas. We all decide somewhere in life, uh, often daily, that it is easier to ask for forgiveness than to ask for permission because Jesus does not grant permission. He knows, he knows this about us. He knows that we would rather reign in hell than serve in heaven. Um, he knows our hearts have a problem. And he even lists the, problem out, the problems out for us. Uh, this is from Mark chapter 7, verses 18 to 23. And this is what Jesus is listing out for us of what we, not, we should not be doing. He says, From within people, from their hearts, come evil thoughts, unchastity, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, licentiousness, envy, blasphemy, arrogance, and folly. All of these evils come from within and they defile. And the very first one he says is unchastity. So um, the, then he's got theft, murder, and adultery. So uh, for anyone who thinks like, um, yeah, that sex stuff is old-fashioned. Well, that's not what hippie Jesus says. So if you're on the hippie train, um, he's even saying that as the very first thing of our evil thoughts. So um, he mentions adultery, and he says that if you even lust in your mind, you've committed it. So if you're looking at porn on your phone, that's adultery. So... Um, it's a good thing to think about and do an examination of conscience and go to confession. That's what you should be doing if you're a believer anyway, in my opinion. 
Um, it's just a wise, wise, wise idea. Um, but here's the thing. Um, I think people have always been this way, uh, but America in the 21st century chooses to ignore the difficult sayings of Jesus. I think they probably always have, you know, um, there's, there's artwork from the middle ages. Like, um, I think it's from Peter Bruegel, the elder, where he has this peasant dance where, uh, there's like the cross in the, in one part of this painting and in another part, uh, there's people sneaking away to get drunk or have sex. I mean, it's the same problems. It's nothing new. Um, uh, but what we really want today is this cool version of Jesus, like like the dude, the big Lebowski kind. Um, that is not who he is. So um, so you, if you mention quotes like this, like the one from Mark 7, of all of the things you're not supposed to do, you can get, uh, people will give you uh, the stink eye. Like they will give you a, a dirty look, um, especially if you hit on the one that they like to do. So people don't want the hard sayings because that's where the going gets tough. Um, if you stick just to the forgiveness parts, you're going to make more friends and which is, which may help, uh, who knows, maybe that is how you turn people in because you, if you want people to come to Jesus, uh, obviously you can't just go and hit them over the head and tell them they're terrible. So there is this, uh, charitable way of speaking to do it. Um, yes, we know Jesus forgives sins, yes, and we're fortunate for that, so we don't have to be our own savior. Um, yes, we will sin because we are fallen. Yes, we must turn back to him to receive forgiveness. But nowhere does it suggest in any terms that the laundry list of sins that he mentions are to be blessed or affirmed. Uh, what he's trying to tell us, um, not only in his teachings, but in metaphor and in literal words, um, and in his life itself is that you must recognize that you are a sinner and that your interior self has a fatal flaw, which is why you sin. So somehow we twist this around and say there is no such thing as sin, which is the opposite of what Jesus is trying to tell us. We're just so good. We're so good at finding arguments um, for reasons to eat the fruit of the garden. And we're so good at inventing reasons to build the Tower of Babel. Um, and this is the point. It's the point of Israel preserving the faith in one God and the point of Jesus as the one God coming here to straighten us out. He has to chase out the bad spirits because they are everywhere and they're reigning supreme in our world. So when you, that's why you say when you are um, set apart or you're, you're trying to get right with God or whatever people will say, that's what they're doing is battle against these temptations and evil. Um, the Lord's Prayer has everything you need in it in those seven parts of that prayer, everything you need to know, um, is in there. It's, it's remarkable. It's probably the greatest, um, little bit of text ever written, maybe except for the, um, tax collector's prayer to God. So, which is, um, Lord Jesus Christ, son of the living God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Um, that that's, so a lot of people will just say that over and over in their head. And it's, it's like a, um, a token to go right back to being humble if you say it correctly. So anyway, these spirits, these temptations, they harass and bother us in order for them to have power over God's creation. We are, we are God's creation. Um, since these, these spirits can never defeat God, they try to destroy us um, and because we are God's most beloved creatures. That's what you need to, to believe, to see yourself as one of God's beloved creatures. Um, imago Dei means the image of God. You are made in the image and likeness of God. 
So even though you are a fallen, a fallen creature, um, he still loves you and you can be saved. That's, that's like the, the, the great contradiction. Uh, for a long time, as the mythologies uh, openly tell us, the powers of the world had turned away from this most high God. And only by the path of the chosen nation of Israel did we return to worship the one true God. So without Israel, we would be engaging only in like tree worship yet and building golden calves or having like a Philadelphia Eagle statue or Green Bay Packer uh, man cave. Uh, so I guess we're still doing it. But anyway, that's uh, again another episode. So the story of Israel is literally the story of a people setting their faces like flint and stepping into a storm of slings and arrows to return the true God to glory in this world. His glory was never lost in reality, but the nations, these powers and principalities, had distracted us from the truth. The salvation history of Israel is a noble story of suffering and hope, um, a, a fight for this truth against an onslaught of falsehoods and cruelty. And yes, the Israelites committed many war crimes themselves in this journey, which is why all of it is written down and recorded, but it is not praised those things. Um, they slaughtered and were slaughtered, but all of this history was for the greater glory of the God that the world was trying to kill off once and for all, and they are the ones, the avenue, the pathway that preserved it. What God accomplished through the people of Israel is so powerful that I have yet to fully appreciate it because it is a long and forbidding act of faith, hope, and love for the one true God that allowed for the Savior to come to us. And while I know the will of God obviously guided it to completion, uh, much heartache and suffering traveled with them in those many years of swimming upstream. And the real ending to the story, as I see it, is this. The cultures surrounding had already moved on from the one God. He was considered dead, something from the past, an artifact of history. And only one group of people knew that he was real, that he was still present, that he was alive, and that he was tending to his sheep. The world wanted to kill God just as many do today, and the declaration of Nietzsche, Nietzsche that God is dead and Time Magazine is as false when he wrote those words as it was, it's as false now as it was in the desert of the Exodus. Um, uh, it's, it's, it's as false today with the, what the new atheists claim. The truth is that people who have rejected God, they want the comfort of believing that God is dead. And when I was falling away, that's what I wanted. So those in rebellion desire certainty that God is dead, that there is no God. And oddly enough, the Pharisees who were trying to protect the one true God also wanted God dead, um, like Caiaphas, the Sadducee. Um, and in the twists of all twists, the chosen people and the pagan polytheist Romans banded together to do just that. They literally killed God. Or they tried. <laughs> they tried so hard. They tried, they nailed the incarnated one true God to a cross, and then to be certain he was dead, they ran a spear into his side. So they got what they wanted. They thought they got what they wanted. But that's the funny thing about getting what you want. In the end, it's what you want the most that will purify you, and it will burn away the imperfections, um, and it will probably leave you empty. Um, it, what you want will destroy you, but it will finally set you free. That's what I'm saying. It'll burn you, but the imperfections will burn away. And in the end, you will be set free. Because just when the Romans and Pharisees and the uh, Sadducees got what they wanted in killing Jesus, they, 
wiped their hands and considered the task taken care of once and for all. And three days later, they discovered that they could not kill God. So on that third morning, there he was. He's still here. He's always here. So getting what you want does not play out as expected because it never does. Instead, like it always does, it purified them. The Romans, hoping to avoid religious disputes and stick with the easy, non-demanding false gods, were complicit in God's murder, and soon after, they were converted away from their polytheism back to the one true God. I mean, soon is a few hundred years, but it happened. The death of Jesus unwound thousands of years of false idols. The Pharisees, thinking they would gain power, saw the temple destroyed 40 years after the crucifixion, and with it, their power and influence faded away. And those who converted, like Saul, who became Paul, found new life. And the rule always holds. What you desire most, if you get it, it will probably take you somewhere very, very unexpected.